We are in 2 Kings chapter 6 to 10, right? And I'm kind of excited about it. It's kind of good. I want to make sure that you have a worship guide, though. So in case you don't have one, you will need this. Uh, if you don't, put your hand up, and uh, our elders and deacons will hand them out to you. So you'll need a worship guide. Graham needs one right there. Put his hand up. Good, Graham. I saw you put your hand up. Did you need a worship guide? Graham's like, I don't know, man. I was kind of kidding. All right, so who needs a worship guide? Everybody will need one. How many of you guys actually read the passages this week in preparation? Breathe in, breathe out. That's heavy stuff inside. Great, Peter's coming out, Thomas as well, that's super. So we'll need the the worship guide in there. Let's do a a quick recap and make sure that everybody remembers, because I did this last week and there was the kind of the summer blues of two weeks of not doing this. So the children of Israel are over here in... This is excellent. They were in exile, and they are looking at the history of their life, and they're over here looking at Judges and Moses and the kings, and they're reading all the stories of the great King David and King Solomon and trying to understand why is it in there in exile? Is it because God abandoned them, or is it because they abandoned God? These are the two questions that they're doing, and the story is supposed to help you transform your what? Life, it's a good guess. I like that, Stacey. <laughs> Your identity in God. I'm kind of worried that I've said it 9,000 times and nobody got it. But that's because I ask you every week a different question. See? You're thinking, if he asked us the same question every week, like exile, we could get it. Well, two more weeks and we will know whether you got it. It is to see if you will transform your identity in God. That's what he's hoping to do. That you're there and you understand all of this comes together. And there's lots of great stuff inside the story that is very powerful. Lots of chaos, lots of difficult things. But last week we really addressed the fact that you need to be patient as you grow and patient with others as well. So, first question is inside here. Recalibrate question. Question number one. How do we resist Jesus. How do we resist Jesus? And I know that you're thinking to yourself, but I don't, I don't know what he's talking about, but let me kind of unpack it a little bit for you inside the story in 1 Kings chapter 6 and see if you feel maybe that's what you do as well sometimes as well when we resist Jesus. The prophets have been doing really well. Elisha has a whole school, a theological seminary, training all these young men to be prophets, to grow up to be prophets, and they're growing, and so they said, we have no space to live here. Let's expand the territory. And as they do this, they move to another place, and they start cutting down trees, and you read the story, it's a really weird story, there's a prophet, and he's cutting down the tree, and as he cuts down the tree, what happens to his axe? The axe head flies off doesn't kill anybody, it's not a movie, flies off, lands into the water, and it's just, and he says, alas, that's the word he uses, oh my dear Lord, what am I going to do? I borrowed that axe, this is a really valuable commodity, how will I survive? And he calls on his Elisha, his boss, and says, what am I going to do? And the story goes that Elisha takes a stick, puts it in the water, and below and behold, the axe head floats. Now when you read this story, you're thinking to yourself, Why? Why this story in the Bible? Isn't it kind of bizarre? What's this story doing inside the Bible? It doesn't make any sense. And you may resist Jesus a little bit and even say, as some commentaries have said, that what happened was Elisha took the stick and he went to the water and he started to search. 
he was searching and searching the bed, and eventually he found the iron axe head, and he put the stick into the iron axe head, and then he lifted it up, and that's how it floated. Right? That's what some people try to say, that that's what happened in the story. Or that God invaded our lives, transformed who we are, and said, I am going to do something that's going to blow your mind and make something that should sink to the bottom float in the water. That God says, I'm going to take control of this illogical wonder and make this thing take place. And that actually is where I lean in the story because the story is pushing us, it's a narrative pushing us to believe in the impossible. I mean, it's things like this. The axe head floats. That's impossible. Dead people are raised. That's impossible. Our sins are forgiven. That's impossible. And yet God says, all those things are possible. There's a great verse, and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms 145. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can take one from the pew. Uh, you're welcome to take the Bible with you, take it home as well, um, and mark in it as well. There's pens in the pew as well. Psalms 145, that's page 359. And this is a great text, and the reason why I want you to go here is because if you don't have this marked in your own Bible, highlighted in your own app, you should highlight this text in your app and in your Bible because it's a superb passage. Page 359, which is Psalms 145, verses 4 to 7. And David gets this. He gets this wonder and this awe. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What he's saying, and David's saying here, and why you should highlight this in your Bible and remember this text, is saying God does amazing things. And these amazing things are happening all the time. And David understood this, and he wants to challenge us to allow our hearts not to resist Jesus. Now, don't lose this thread because you've just seen the story of the axe and you're thinking, okay, I kind of got the idea here. I'm not quite sure where it's going to go next. But the thread of God being amazing continues through this story. And we end up in the Syrian court next, which is the, the story that happens, the episode that happens next in chapter 6 here. And the king of Syria, as Jackie had explained in the children's story, the king of Syria decides he wants to go to war against Israel. So he's up north, remember him? Remember a few, a few weeks back we talked about how Solomon had actually armed the king of Syria? He had grown the kings of Syria, so Syria as an empire grew because Solomon gave him weapons from Egypt and horses and things that he shouldn't have done and he traded and made this enemy grow. The enemy now grows and now the enemy is attacking Israel. Da da da. And as he does this, he says, I think we're going to go down the left aisle of the sanctuary. And Elisha, not in the court, nowhere near the king of Syria, says to the king of Israel, they're coming down the left side of the aisle. And then the king says, I think we should go down the right side of the aisle, down the side, and before you know it, Elisha says to the king of Israel, they're coming down the right side. And the king of Syria, he gets really upset about this. He's like, who in this court is betraying us? And you can imagine, I mean, in those days, anybody who betrayed somebody, treason like that, they would have been killed instantly. And they're all scared for their lives. And so what they do is they say, it is Elisha. They find out 
It's Elisha. Somehow, even the things that the king dreams of in his bedroom, God tells Elisha, this is what the king is thinking. And with that, he takes them and sends it on. So the king says, I'm going to send an army to kill this guy. And it's, it's kind of like one of these classic movies where you've got Rambo. Uh, and Rambo, I think it's Rambo 4000, uh, where, where he's standing up against the entire Afghan army, right? Just him and one bazooka, and he's going to take them all out. And it's just kind of like Ethan, Haw, uh, Ethan Hunt in uh, Mission Impossible, right? Where he's like, he's been disavowed, and nobody knows this. But Ethan, by himself, is going to take on the entire planet, just like that, and he's going to run somewhere and ride a motorcycle and jump somewhere because that's what Tom Cruise does all the time. And so this is what Elisha's facing. He's facing the entire enemy all by himself, and his servant is panicking. His servant is like, there's no hope for us at all. And in that moment, Elisha reveals to the servant, opens his eyes, as we sang open our eyes. He opens his eyes and he says to him, look, and as he looks, he sees the army of God all around Elisha. And the servant's like, yes, we're going to be safe. I understand how you can do this. And then Elisha prays the prayer and he closes the sight of the enemy. And then he leads the enemy into the crowd of Israel and says, come, come follow me. I'll show you where Elisha is. He takes them in. And as he takes them in, he gives them their sight back and they're surrounded by the enemy. And they're like, oh man, we're dead now. And the king says, let's kill them. Let's kill all of them. They're our enemy. And Elisha says, let's feed them. And at that moment, through prophetic voice, Elisha, through the food, through this moment, creates peace in the land and there's safety all around. Now, sight is really critical in the Bible. It's all over here because God is constantly using sight as an example for this. So I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, page 391 in your Bibles, but Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Again, this is a beautiful text, well worth marking in your Bible, well worth highlighting inside it because this really addresses some, some of the beauty of what God is saying here. So God is talking to Isaiah. He's giving his call to ministry, his call to life, and he says this in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say this to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. See what God does? He's like, come on, and as I let them be blind. Let them be deaf. Let them not listen. Let them not see. Because if they listen and if they see, they will be turned. Their hearts will be healed and they will be followers. If everybody's ever worried whether God is sarcastic or funny, uh, I think there's quite a lot of that all the way through the Bible. But I want to turn with one more text in Matthew uh, chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, page 571. Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through to 19. Again, another great text, well worth underlining. Put a little asterisk by that. Connecting all these dots and all these texts together inside 2 Kings 6 is really critical to understanding what, what Elisha's doing. Because this is what Isaiah did. This is what Jesus does here. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. 
you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, there's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind man, for which is greater, the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred? God is saying here to all those Pharisees and scribes of the time here, why are you resisting all the time? You constantly are blind about things and you're resisting Jesus all the time. Hence, the great story in John 9 that goes in great detail about the blind man who was healed and given sight. And then Jesus takes that metaphor and that miracle and he takes it all the way through and he says, but it's just like spiritual blindness. You guys don't even see. You don't know that I, Jesus, am the Messiah right before you. I'm fulfilling all the promises that took place in the first testament and you resist Jesus. And today, we do the same. We resist because these stories exist for us to be able to say, let go. I can't raise the axe out of the water. Only God's going to be able to do that. Now, imagine, and many of us do this, we imagine the reason why we resist God is because we have greater experience than God. We have greater knowledge than God. We have greater wisdom than God. We have greater facts than God. And we have greater insights than God. But the problem is that we have substituted God for church. So we actually believe that we have greater experience than church. And we have greater knowledge than church. And we have greater wisdom than church. And greater facts than church. And greater insights for church. But the problem is that we have substituted church for leaders in the church. So we have greater experience than the leaders in our church and greater knowledge than the leaders in our church and greater wisdom than the the leaders in our church and greater facts than the leaders in our church and greater insights than the leaders of our church. And what God tried to present to us, we have said, well, I don't look at God. I look at the pastor. I look at the elders. I look at the leaders in the church. And that's how I decide what God is saying. No, no, no. I kind of sometimes look at the church as a whole, globally, what it does. No, no, no. I barely get to hear what God is saying. And then I reject the leaders because I disagree with a decision they made or a belief that they have or an attitude that they take or an interpretation they have or I disagree with the church because of a stand that it took because it did this globally that wasn't really right for the whole world. And we reject God by rejecting the process all the way through. And Jesus is saying, stop always resisting the things I'm trying to teach you. Don't assimilate that everything that the pastor says or the elder says is from God. It may not be from God. Doesn't mean that you should resist God. But we have actually placed and replaced God with people that we see all the time. So we allow our doubts to grow. And listen, there's nothing wrong with doubts if a doubt creates a good question as long as you're willing to admit that sometimes you're gonna ask a question and you won't find an answer. And the answer will come when you're in heaven, when you meet Jesus, and you'll understand that. And maybe it'll take eternity in heaven for you to be able to understand that. The difficulty is that some of us use doubts as an excuse for us to continue sinning. Well, I don't know. I don't know if the Bible's really accurate. I don't know if it's really connected in that way. I mean, let me see. Let me ask Annalisa up the back up there. Annalisa? Annalisa? Sydney, let me ask you. 
Annalisa, what do you guys think? Do you think that sometimes we use doubt, things that we question in life, and use that to stop following God? Pretty fair? All right. If they agree, then we agree, then we're all okay, right? Is it? Well, here's the thing. Questioning is really important. Sin is all over the place. And we struggle with understanding where sin connects with all of this because we're constantly saying, well, it can't actually always be that way in there. But Jesus is saying, look, I want to nudge you in your finances, in your marriages, in your life, in your church. I want to do all this kind of push aside you, but you are broken human beings and you need to remember the church is full of broken human beings that are trying, all of them desperately, including myself, to follow God as best as we know how. And so if you place your faith in each other as human beings, you're not placing your faith in God. And when you think you're resisting us, you end up resisting God. The next episode continues in 2 Kings chapter 8 here, uh, chapter 7 actually, where Ben-Hadad, he's a new king, he grows up and he goes forward and he decides that he's going to go against them and he surrounds Samaria now and this guy creates a huge famine inside there and as he does this in verse 24, 2 Kings chapter 7 verse 24, he creates this huge famine inside there, a woman approaches the king because this is the thing, sometimes leaders make decisions, they go to war. And they live their life still like everything's fine. But in truth, in truth, as they go to war, people are suffering all around them. So the king, as he's walking, he's confronted by this woman. And this woman says to him, I don't have any food, I'm starving, and I don't understand how to handle this. And suddenly, he rips all of his clothes off him in verse 13, and he puts on sackcloth, and he walks through the land because now he has put a face to the story. When you have a face of the story, everything changes. You see, when you don't have a face of the story, it's very easy to make decisions about people. It's easy to fire someone when you don't actually have to talk to them. It's easy to reject somebody by text <laughs> when you don't have to talk to them. It's easy to accuse somebody when they're not present in your room. It's easy to ignore someone when you are in a big crowd. You can choose that kind of stuff. Look, if Bernie Madoff, who, what did he do? He, he maneuvered $65 billion of people's wealth all around, fictitiously creating huge vacuums. I think it ended up being 16 or 18 billion that was the eventual final loss that took place. It destroyed lives. It destroyed homes. It destroyed entire communities. People's retirement funds gone. Organizations, nonprofits lost all of their income because one guy sat in a room one day with a few friends and said, let's just scan this up and make a lot of money for ourselves. And let's continue cooking the system as best as we can because there was no face attached to it. But if he had faces, if he had known that his actions had done that, would he have taken that? Schools sometimes remove kids because they don't attach a face to that. Churches sometimes remove members because they don't attach a face to it. Governments sometimes remove immigrants because they haven't put a face to it. Society sometimes removes people, minorities, whether that's over gender or over race, because they haven't put a face to it. And when God created the world, he got down on his hands and his knees and he formed the face of Adam and Eve because he had a face attached to it. 
The faith means everything. When you know someone, you understand it. Hence the plan of salvation that Jesus put into action, the Trinity put into action before they even created Adam and Eve because God knew what he was going to create. And he created this plan of salvation that makes no sense whatsoever other than to ourselves, really, because we are bloodthirsty, hungry people who need something like that. God creates a system and says, well, this system will make sense to you. I'll do this for you, and I will sacrifice myself in this place so you will understand what it actually takes place inside here. But so often, we don't remember faces. And God is saying to us, I want you to understand that things are deeply complex. And in that deep complexity, I have your best interests at heart. There's another great text, page 41, is Isaiah 55, verse 8. So turn with me to Isaiah 55, verse 8. Page 41 in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 55, verse eight. And this, this is one of those verses that you may even wanna memorize at some point. This is one of those you wanna Instagram at some point. These are one of those that you just wanna be able to retweet at some point, for he says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God has ways and methods that don't make sense to us. And when we resist, the humanity that we exist inside, we often throw God into the same bundle and resist him as well, just as quickly. And he's saying, enough's enough. Listen to the whole story. Listen to the breadth of the whole Bible. Listen to, to God screaming and crying and begging through the stories to say, understand that I'm working with you as messy and as chaotic as it is. I am working with you and helping you to understand this. The story continues then inside here and Elisha delivers good news because the famine is terrible and it's just devastating the people and he says to them, this time tomorrow you're gonna have food in the land and some people don't believe. The captain of the guard's like, I don't think that's true, but he says, no, this time tomorrow, guaranteed, food's gonna be there. And then you have this great story, this funny story of the lepers where they're deciding this because what happens is, and this is a great parallel, you know how sometimes things are done in threes and sevens or, or a story is repeated to connect you to another story? Well, here's the great story connection. The Syrian army surrounds them, causing a famine in the land, ready to attack them, all is set inside there, and suddenly their sight is revealed, and they hear the sound of armies, they hear the sound of chariots, and they hear the sound of horses. Three things, armies, chariots, and horses, hear them three times. Same story, connection, taking place in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 29. Remember when he's on Mount Carmel? And they go to their god Baal, and no response, no one answers, and no one pays attention. But the god who hears, he lets them see and hear as well. So he's saying, look, when I am present, everything will change. When your god Baal is there, apparently, absent, you will see that I will still be present. So it's a direct connection. Elisha connecting back to Elijah on Mount Carmel here. But here's the funny story. The lepers are sitting inside, the inside Samaria thinking, do we go out there, do we not? It's kind of like they're paralyzed by the decision-making process. And should I marry her? Should I not marry her? Should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Should I do this? Should I follow Christ or not follow Christ? I don't know. I mean, you don't know. There's no definitive answer going back and forth between these things here. So they eventually they go out there. They discover this Syrian army, saw this army, disappeared and ran for their lives. And the food is abundantly everywhere. They left the gold and the shields and everything and just left the entire lot there. God has defeated the enemy, and Israel is safe. 
And that is the definition of good news, that God is in control. So now these lepers take the good news and they deliver the good news, which is a great way that's done in the Hebrew Bible. It actually says they negad, they told eventually the king. And it tells us in verses 10 to 15, they told negad the gatekeepers. They told negad the king's court. They told the king himself. It had to go through multiple levels all the time. They're telling the good news. Lepers going to the king. Things really have changed, and God is in control. The question we have for ourselves is if Jesus is in charge in your own life, who have you told? Who have you told in your communities, in your families, with your children? Have you articulated to them with words as clear as you can to say, yes, Jesus is in control? Let's go to question number two in our worship guide. Question number two. What lines in the sand do you need to draw? What lines in the sand do you need to draw? Well, it's an interesting phrase because people don't like to draw lines in the sand. They say it's, it's not very friendly. We shouldn't draw lines in the sand. We should just draw a big circle and let everybody stay inside there or, or just build sandcastles and play with that kind of stuff. But it's a great metaphor because sand moves, which means that often you'll have to draw a new line and you'll have to draw a new line, but you have to draw a line inside the sand inside there. Elisha warns the widow, that, uh, the woman that he had looked after before in the previous stories, says to her, remember your son, uh, you, I, I helped you get a son, resurrected him the whole lot, there's gonna be a famine in the land, get out of here. She goes down south, and as she goes down south, she disappears for seven years, the king takes over her land. So when she returns, once the famine is done, she turns up at the king's court and says, uh, this is my land, I want it back. Now here's the interesting thing. Elisha's old servant is inside there talking to the king. And as he's talking to the king, he says to the king, man, there was this, this prophet, Elisha, he was just amazing. You know what he did? There was this woman and, and she couldn't have a child and he prayed and she became pregnant. And then the child was born and as she was born, the child grew and then the child got sick and the child died and, and Elisha came and he breathed and he laid on top of this child and the child came to life. And as he's telling this story, in walks the woman. And, and he's like, she's the one that I'm telling you the story about. It's like the perfect prop just arrived right there. And the king's like, what, that's the one? Yes, and so when she makes the claim, Elisha's servant is able to verify that it's actually a legitimate claim. The king investigates it and says, based on the word, we go ahead, you can get the land, it's all back yours. This is the thing, we would like to call that lucky coincidence. Wasn't it just lucky that at that time the guy was there and she turned up? Wasn't it just a coincidence that it took place this way? But maybe God is saying that he's working inside the lies. So when you're sitting in exile and you're questioning what's going on, God is saying there are pieces that are still coming together all the time. On Monday we, had a, we have a, two, two people who come to deliver FedEx or UPS pretty stable, same people all the time. But on Monday, a new guy turned up, a new guy turned up, and uh, walked into my office to deliver something, and he saw my guitar, and then he saw my Vox amp, uh, and he said, oh, I've got a Vox amp. And I said, what have you got? Have you got the AC? He said, I've got the AC30, which is the model above my model. And I said, I used to play on the AC30. That's a great sound. And we talked about the guitars, and then I said to him, you play? We have a worship team here. Come and play with us. 
That's what you should do. If you play lead guitar, we haven't got a lead guitarist who hasn't been played in a while. Matthew's been really busy for a while, so come and play with us. That'd be great. And sure enough, he said, you know what? I work every Saturday, but the next time I get a Saturday off, I'll come. And I said, well, come early. <laughs> They're here from 7 a.m. He's like, that's all right. I get up early. I work for UPS. <laughs> so, so I said, is that coincidence? Or is that the power of the Holy Spirit placing us in moments where we get to have conversations taking place? I was uh, in Portland, Oregon uh, for the last couple of days with Elia. We went to visit David Smith. Uh, he's our new family life pastor that's going to be arriving here. Hopefully in the middle of June is the goal. Uh, once he finishes academy, the year there, graduation, sells, buys, all that kind of stuff, comes over here and will be joining us. And we'll talk a little about, about him in a bit. But um, on Thursday morning, we went to Mother's Bistro, which is downtown Portland. If you've never eaten in Portland, Oregon, in downtown city, and you want to have a really great breakfast experience, Mother's Bistro, brilliant. So I'm sitting inside there, large restaurant, and I kid you not, as we're waiting for our food to come, I see this family come in, and the mother sits down, and I'm like, no way. This family, I, I married them years ago, like maybe 18 years ago. They got three little girls. Uh, I watched them on Facebook and Instagram because they live out in Michigan. And uh, he's an architect and she's a nurse. And I was like, get out of here. This is their last day of vacation and they chose this place at this time to have breakfast. Is that lucky? Or is it that God is saying there's something to happen here? So I went up to them and said hello to them and said, when are you guys moving to Boulder? <laughs> I mean, come on, beautiful kids, great family, good people, salt of the earth people. So I'm asking you as a congregation, you know of any jobs out there for architects and nurses, a couple, come and tell me because we will, we will find a way for them to come out here. Great family and you will love them. You know, they, she, she, I met her because she was a student missionary when I was a chaplain there and superb people. But why did God bring us together at that point? Why did God send us to that place for breakfast at that hour? Why did God sit me at this table and not at a table in the other section of the restaurant that I would never have seen them? Is it luck? Or is it that God is saying, I'm nudging you all the time for moments? And it means a lot. Because, you know, this couple, when they got married, she was Adventist and he was an Adventist. And there were not a lot of Adventist pastors who would have married them because there's some rules that they have. And, and so I married them. Uh, her and him, and, and, but I, I, have, I have some rules as well, I just, I do, this is, what I, this is what I do, okay, here's the deal, so just so you know this, and nobody goes, like, what, I'm equally yoked, um, and then they have a heart attack, and we have to do a resurrection, um, I ask couples that are of different Christian walks to do all their premarital counseling with me, I ask them to also to attend my church for a year afterwards, right, so this is the, the, the deal. You, premarital counseling, I'll do all of that with you, I'll prepare you, I'll talk through the complexities of having two different Christian walks with God and two different days of worship and how you're gonna make this work. And, but then, after that, you have to attend church for a year and you have to study the Word of God with me as well after this. And so, the guy said, sure, I'll do that. Actually, what was ironic is that his, uh, his uh, pastor from his tribe uh, wouldn't let me do the wedding in their church, which was a beautiful, beautiful church, because he was scared that in that one wedding speech that I was gonna do, I was gonna convert the entire church to Sabbath. I was like, whoa, if only. <laughs> I mean, that's what he was worried about, but it's great. They eventually, you know, the guy, he, he went through the process and understood that 
there's so much beauty in the community, a strength of being unified at home and being on the same track. And, and they came together, he got baptized, and they're a great Adventist family. So remember, if you know of any architect positions, nursing, let us know, and we will work them out so they can move out here next week. Um, God lines us up all the time. He's doing this all the time, and he's doing this because he wants to prod and to drive us along. And sometimes we have to be able to say, I draw the line in the sand, and I make a decision, and I'm going to do this decision. Janelle and Jim Faz, you're not here right now, uh, uh, but uh, let me talk, to you, talk about them. Um, <laughs> so they came here about a year and a half ago, and uh, they were inside church, and Jim was saying that he was like... Uh, he was looking for something in particular, wrestling with God about some kind of vision about what he believes church should be. And he came and he heard some stuff being said at church that really hit home for him. But Jim and Janelle, you know, they're engaged in lots of other churches and lots of Adventist churches, and they go to Flatirons pretty much every Saturday afternoon. They go there to, uh, to uh, their service over there. So, you know, it took them a while to decide, am I drawing a line in the sand and choosing this as my community? And on a Tuesday night at the elders' board, uh, because she, Janelle was at One Life on Sabbath uh, helping out. She said, it happened on Sabbath. I mean, I've transferred my membership here, and I'm an elder, I'm active inside here, but on Sabbath, it just hit me last Sabbath. I go to all these places, I go to Flatirons, and I listen to great stuff that's going on, but this is our family. This is our church. And she said that she said it out loud for the first time, and when she said it out loud, it became real to her a commitment. I drew a line in the sand and said, I stepped over this and this is where I belong and this is my family. And every day we do the same things. I mean, we, we make choices to follow Jesus. And maybe some of you have thought about following Jesus but never got baptized. It's really easy. You just check the little connect card inside your worship guide there, put it in with your tithe and offering or stick it inside one of these containers or in the connect uh, container over there and we'll connect with you and you can get baptized next week. It's not difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to accept that he has saved you, that you live by his mercy and grace is a great celebration that should take place. But inside that as well, there comes a time, I'm gonna invite Eric to come up here, uh, there comes a time when you say to yourself, I, I actually have wined and dined uh, lots of different churches. Now, let me just explain whining and dining. It's, not, it's just a metaphor. <laughs> I, I'm not suggesting that you should go drink alcohol. It just, it rhymes. Okay, I thought about another one, but it rhymes so nicely, so wine and dine. Uh, and so just don't tweet that, don't say that to anyone. I don't want any confusion. We don't need an emergency business meeting tonight to, to discuss that he's advocating alcohol or anything thing like this. But here's the thing. You go to lots of churches, like Eric did. You work out where your faith is, and then at some point you decide, I want to follow Jesus. And Eric got baptized in August, and he decided that this is it. And if you were not here, Go to the archives and watch his story that he shares with you. It's a powerful, beautiful story about what he shares with you. But he still, even though he belongs to God, even though he's adopted by God, he knew that he had to take his faith and put it into action. And he's been volunteering here and helping with loads of things. But today, after wrestling with Pastor Kirk King for a long time there, and Kirk, you know, knocked him to the ground and punched him in the corner, and, and that's what we do as pastors. We wrestle with you spiritually because you won't want to wrestle with me. And so, <laughs> wrestling with Pastor Kirk King, uh, Eric made the decision, and actually, this is his tribe. 
This is where he wants to belong. He wants to belong to the Seventh-day Adventist church. He wants to experience his faith through here. So today I'm gonna to ask you to vote. Uh, I'm gonna ask you, um, you can watch, this is fun. Uh, and I'm gonna ask you to vote if you're in favor of Eric because of his profession of faith and being baptized in Jesus Christ, being a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church and experiencing it in our local expression here at Boulder, raise your hands. All right, look at that. And if you are opposed to that, raise your hands. Just watch, watch, we're going carefully. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> welcome, welcome. We're really glad. Thank you, then. All right, thank you. We exist in a beautiful world where God is saying to us, in the chaos of exile, in the chaos of things going on, I'm still working in your heart. And if you are open to that, you're gonna draw lines and you're gonna say, I commit 100%. And some of you come here on a very regular basis, but you, you haven't decided to become members of this church yet. Well, maybe today is the time. Fill in the Connect card right inside there. We'll send it to Debbie, our church clerk up there, and she'll take care of it, and we'll transfer you into here. Question number three, our final question of this morning. What revolution is God calling you to? You know, um, when you read chapters eight to 10, it's, uh, it's pretty hot. <laughs> It's pretty hot inside here. And I got an email from Audrey, uh, it was last night or this morning, where Audrey Ambler sent me an email saying, you know, I just, I read the text last night and there's a lot of, and she used a particular word that, that I can't share with you, but it involves B and then Y at the end. Bloody. <laughs> there's a lot of blood inside here. Because it was, it's, it's, it's really gruesome. It's rated M for mature, 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 like triple M. It's intense, all what goes inside here. And I wanna go through this text backwards. I wanna go chapter 10 backwards because I wanna end on chapter eight inside here. And this is all that happens inside these texts here. Um, you see a king, Jehu, and this king, it's, it's amusing because Eliah, when Eliah was reading this, uh, this text and writing the pastoral reflection this week, he sent me a text, because he's, he's smart aleck like that. He sent me a text halfway through and he said, did you read that verse there? It's uh, verse 20 in, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 20, it says this. And again, watching a man reported, he reached him, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. And Eliah's like, that's you. <laughs> That's you. And then he read the rest of the story and said, it's not you, it's not you. I'm like, yeah, thank you. Because <laughs> this guy drives furiously. And in that fact, that's how they recognized him. They could see the way the chariot was coming. They're like, that's Jehu. I don't even need spy glasses for that. But this guy, he comes and uh, he ends up creating treason against the king. Uh, the, the prophet, in fact, sends a prophet, Elisha sends a prophet to anoint him and says these words to him. He says, when you go and anoint this guy, as soon as you anointed him, run for your life. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Go in there, douse the oil on him, and run for your life. Don't linger around this guy. And sure enough, Jehu goes and meets this prophet, he anoints him, he becomes king, and Jehu goes and three times he tells his people, they made me king, I'm king, I should lead, I should lead, and he does. And he causes all sorts of massacres, seven horrific acts inside there, cleaning the house of Israel, removing Baal and all the evil people inside there. But the revolution that took place inside him was needed and was called for, but he understood where it was coming from. So I wanna go back to chapter eight because chapter eight, there's a little section there that I wanna end on today. 
Elisha goes and sees uh, this guy. This guy comes to him called Hezael, and Hezael is a servant of the king, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was the one who surrounded Samaria. Ben-Hadad's sick, and uh, he's not recovering well. So he says to his servant, Hezael, go see Elisha and find out if I'm going to die or whether I'm going to live. And uh, Elisha goes to him, and, and the story goes like this, that Elisha sees the guy and says to him, hey, your king's sick, he's going to die. And then verse 11, and you've got to see this verse here because it's pretty intense. And verse 11, chapter 8, and he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why are you weeping? And Elisha said, because I see that you are going to become king and you are gonna hurt people. And this was just too much for him. Too much for him. Because he looked at this and he saw this and Hazael, man, he said, but I'm just a lowly servant, I can't become king. But he took the message back to his king, said, king, you're gonna be fine, you're gonna be fine. And that night he went and got a towel with water and, and doused, it over, he says, doused it over his face and held him until the guy died that night. He killed the king, assassinated him. And then he became king. And for the next 40 years, he did horrible, horrible things against the children of Israel. And the Bible records some of these horrible things that he did, and it's what caused Elisha to weep. On Tuesday night, um, we sat down with the elders, and we talked about what God has called us as people to do. And I took some of those ideas uh, that we had shared on Tuesday night, some of the passions, some of the angst, uh, to David Smith, and Eli and I were able to spend two days reflecting on what God has called him and called us together, and we planned and we dreamed, we looked at the preaching plan and we looked at communion and we said, these are things that we could do differently and stronger and better that we could actually help to build our community that are disconnected at times from each other. But as we wrestle through this time, there's always all this dreaming and all this joy that takes place, but somebody said to me that maybe we're just asking the church too much. By the church, us, you know, because Christ is the church and we belong to him. Maybe we're asking too much of each other. So here's the thing. I'm going to ask you, to, to every single one of you, to take your worship guides. I'm going to ask you to take that little section right now. I'm just going to wait here. Um, and uh, the music's starting now, Peter, with, uh, with a lion. He's going to come lead us in worship. And while he's doing that, um, I'm going to have you just take this out and take the pen and uh, ignore the titles up here, but use the blank space. And this is a sentence that I want you to write and I want you to complete. Today, Jesus is asking me to, okay? Um, for some of you, you're gonna write this, that Jesus is asking me to take care of my family. That's all he's asking for. You don't have to put your names down on this, by the way. I want to collect all of them. I want to collect all of them. Put them in the offering plate as they go through in our final song here. If you put your name down on it, we'll reach out to you and we'll talk about it as well but you don't have to put your name down. But I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart to say this. When you look at what's going on in the world, when you look at what's going on in our community here, what makes you weep? And I know we don't want to live in a state of like emotional anxiety and so maybe we'll resist Jesus and push away some stuff and we'll blind things off, but, but God is saying, that's what you come to church on Sabbath morning, to be filled up and to be challenged, <laughs> to be challenged that you are honorable daughters and sons of God. 
But you have the good news. And that good news is that Jesus is in charge of this world as chaotic and crazy as it may appear every single day. And when bad things happen and when good things happen, God's in the middle of all of that with you. And what does Jesus say to you? What does he make you weep over? Is it that you're going to write down your family? Is it that you're going to write down something new you're going to do at church? Is it that you're going to do something with your loved ones or your community, your work? But I want you to write this down because I think sometimes just by writing it out, it becomes real to us what God has called us to. bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender. May Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care. May Jesus bless you with courage, daring to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. And may Jesus bless you with the power to make Jesus all.